This next session, You Had Me at a Low, is here by popular demand. We asked people at the end of the last conference to give us their ideas for panels and general sessions. And this was the most popular idea. Give us a session. And people all, you know, and so many people called it the art of the pitch. It's very interesting. We all know that um, we can do the most interesting work possible, that we could gather here together for days and weeks on end and talk about the art and the craft, but if just our family and our friends listen to the work that we've produced, that, that gets kind of old and it certainly doesn't pay the rent. So that how you pitch your stories and pitch your ideas to the various programs that exist out there is critical. One person wrote on their form, for independence, the ability to pitch can make or break you. One of the most persuasive letters we received was from Neil Sandel, who is our moderator. He takes in 1,000 pitches a year himself as the senior producer of CBC's Outfront, which is an award-winning program that gives Canadians the opportunity to tell their stories in all sorts of ways, from very personal and dramatic um, narratives and, and essays, um, all the way to very experimental work. So, of course, we asked Neil to pitch this, to, to moderate this session. Put your, put your, put your mouth where your, where your writing was, so he's up here today to lead this session. He is the senior producer, yes, I'm totally after staying up till two o'clock in the morning, completely screwed up that cliche. Um, so, without further ado, welcome Neil Sandel and his panel to talk about You Had Me at Hello. Thank you, thank you. Um, we've got a great panel here. Let me give, quickly uh, introduce them. Uh, Chris Turpin uh, is, is the exec of All Things Considered. Um, he started off with Monitor Radio, uh, and then he joined an NGO uh, called Internews where the, that he describes as uh, helping develop independent media in countries emerging from conflict. Days after he got that job, he moved to America, um, where he became uh, involved with All Things Considered. Julie Snyder is senior producer of um, This American Life. She's been with the show for eight years. And Jeremy Skeet is managing editor of Weekend America, spent most of his career with BBCs, worked in Africa with BBC World Service, has, the unique, uh, has been in the unique position of being the guy at the BBC who pitched documentaries to powers that be. Is that right? So he's, he's been a pitcher and a receiver of pitches. Um, we're going to, um, through this panel here, uh, three, three people pitch from the floor, three brave souls. Uh, Dacia Herbulak, Don Dreyer, uh, and Peter Crimmins. So I'll give you guys cues when you should come to the mic. Um, we'll be nice to you. Uh, so we'll get some tips. We'll get the big picture. We'll have questions, you know, we'll have fun. Um, sometimes uh, the art of the pitch is about what not to do, right? Uh, and I was reading through some pitches last week to my show, and uh, I'm reading words that I never want to see in a pitch. 
but I digress. So, Chris, what are some words you never want to see in a pitch? <laughs> I don't know whether never, but uh, a 52-week series is one of the scariest things you ever see in a pitch. Great, you can have great 52-week series, but it can be pretty scary. Um, Four-hour documentary that, with your help, we can cut down to fit all things considered format is another very terrifying prospect. Uh, and this one is honestly true, and I still haven't worked out how to respond to it. Is it's an intimate portrait of the legendary porn star, renowned for having the longest, and I'll leave you to fill in the blanks in the sentence. It's like the, how do I explain that that's never going to make it at four o'clock in the afternoon? Uh, uh, know your know your program and know your audience, um, Julie. Let's see, the, for, for, for what I get a lot um, that is sort of disheartening is usually um, my writing is a lot like David Sedaris's. <laughs> and, and, and usually there I um, turn the page. And then the other one is that um, is probably a lot of like just sort of an idea and then somebody says, I just want to go down there and then see what happens. And that is usually when I also have to turn the page. Um, when there's no plan. So those are probably the two main things that I would try and avoid. Oh, and the one other thing that I had talked about oh, yeah. with you before is that um, I don't wanna go have coffee. I, have, I get a lot of those kind of pitches is maybe we could have coffee sometime and we could talk about it. And um, <laughs> it's too hard and I don't wanna really go have coffee. So that's <laughs> the other thing. And then honestly, I feel too bad and too guilty telling people that, so then I'll just avoid you. Um, so try, don't, don't ask for coffee. Jeremy. Uh, for a new show, it's slightly different, it's uh, the long-established ones. I've never listened to your program, but I thought you might like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I pitched this to All Things Considered, and they said no. <laughs> I pitched this to This American Life, get, and they said no. You probably get that one a lot. <laughs> uh, and then a, a phrase in the middle of the pitch is, uh, is that she is not alone, she is one of many. It's sort of a bit of a <laughs> <laughs> Let me add two more. This is perfect for your show. Um, we'll be the judge of that. Uh, I love your show, which isn't a turnoff, but sucking up won't get you the story. So <laughs> uh, let's take the big picture. Um, I, think, I think Johanna led into something quite, quite material to the art of pitching, uh, which is, and people will think this crass if I say it probably, um, Pitching is an exercise in marketing, really. You can have the greatest idea in the world, the most noble intentions in the world, but if you can't sell your idea, uh, it's going nowhere. And there's a saying in marketing that goes something like this. When people go into a hardware store, they don't buy quarter-inch drill bits. They buy quarter-inch holes. And by the same token, uh, when people buy, people don't buy insurance, uh, they buy peace of mind. So really the idea here is that when you're selling something, you're selling a benefit. Uh, and if you flip that over, if you're the person buying, which is the commissioning producers, you're buying a benefit. So um, Chris, what, what do you look for? Uh, I mean, really, when you're reading through pitches, what are you really buying? Um, I think you're buying the possibility of great radio, um, the possibility of finding a really compelling story. Um, 
you're buying on a show like ours that has six or seven, essentially we, we have 20 elements a day on the show, 100 elements a week that we produce with a relatively small staff. And so we're also buying a degree of self-sufficiency. We want to sense that, you know, that's something that to some degree takes some of the pressure off our own staff and our own creative demands. Uh, and also hopefully buying a degree of journalistic integrity. Uh, something that we can trust, or uh, uh, working with someone who we, we can believe in. Uh, uh, Jeremy, Julie, would it differ from, on your shows at all? No, not really, honestly. That, that feels like that's about right. It, the, only, the only difference I think that our show would have, as opposed to something like ATC, is that, that um, we are asking for a certain level of competency, um, when people pitch us stories, but we are also pretty used to working with people who have never done radio stories before, or never done any kind of journalism before. So that doesn't totally, that doesn't mean that we would say no. Um, if you're bringing something to it that you've got, which is usually, it's your story, you have access to that story, um, you, you have something that nobody else can bring to that story. We definitely value that, and our staff is actually there to help um, produce the whole story along with you, which would mean sort of every aspect of it we'll go out and do with you. That said, though, um, a lot of times that we will get pitches that are like, you know, I want to do a series or I want to go out and just like follow people around for four weeks and stuff. That kind of stuff we, we can't go out with you and do. Like, we don't have the time or the energy or the resources to do with you. So for those kind of stories, we would definitely ask that, that you're able to do it by yourself. And if you've never done it before, that, that probably means... Jeremy? No. Yeah, I'll just add one thing to Chris, which I agree that, it, unlike NPR, we're just a small, I mean, there are about uh, five, 10 of us in LA. And what we're really asking for is, when you know, our remit is to cover the country, so we're really asking you to be our eyes and ears out in the country. We can't get people, we have no network. We have no staff in Houston or Chicago or anywhere else. So we need the independents to sort of feed us and to cover the country and to, you know, reflect the diversity of America. We can't do that. Uh, so what are some concrete things that people can do to, to make their pitch better? Uh, Julie, do you want to kick us off on that? Concrete things to do to make your pitch better? Yeah. Uh, make sure you have a good story. Um, <laughs> I mean, basically, I don't, I don't think that there is a total art to a pitch for, for me personally. I'm not looking for something that is like, you know, grab me with the first sentence or, um, you know, give me your resume and all your clips along with it. Or I don't have concrete rules like that other than I feel like I need to know that the story is good. And so tell me everything that you know about the story and about the characters. And for This American Life, I think, and, and honestly, everything I would say only really applies for me. I don't know if you guys would agree, you know, and if you do chime in, but, but I'm only kind of talking from, from the perspective of getting something on This American Life. But um, characters are so important, and we need to have characters who are interesting and surprising uh, in conflict. Um, but the surprising part is really the most important, and I would say that always go for that in your pitch, that you need to be talking about what it is about this person or this situation that is surprising um, in terms of the storyline, is surprising to you, that you didn't expect would happen, that you think um, opens itself up to something more. So I would definitely think that you need to get to that pretty quickly in your pitch, or at least... 
um, foreshadow that it's coming, that a surprise is coming, um, mm. basically. Um, I, mean, I, I think, I, I agree. I don't think there's any kind of perfect way to pitch. I don't think there's any kind of paradigm, you know, like those awful cover letters that people write mm -hmm. when they're applying for jobs where they've read in a book somewhere that you have to write them in a particular way. There's no, you know, there's no art like that uh, um, to doing this. I, I think though that the, the, the pitch really is a window uh, into the mind of the person who is making it. So if you pitch clearly and you have a clear focus for your story, that's telling me or whoever's reading the pitch that you have a sense of what it is you're trying to do and that you have a kind of clarity of thinking that means that you can probably actually execute that. If you're writing your pitch clearly and it's nicely, you know, it's nicely written, it's, it's a pretty good, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be able to tell the story you know, nicely and clearly and uh, in, in, in a way that can grab the attention of a listener. So, I mean, I think some of the things that I find most off-putting are, you know, are things where you get a very muddled idea. And there probably is something in there, but it's very hard to find out exactly what it is. Yeah, I think there were two, you know, some, we want, you know, we're running two documentaries, six-minute documentaries from the festival here this uh, weekend. We want commentaries. We want an, all sorts of things, so there's no uh, ideal pitch, as it were. But, but I think there are a couple of things that would help, is that... When, you, when you're trying the pitch, just imagine what the lead would say for whichever program you're saying it, whether it be Ira saying it or, or the ATC hosts. Just imagine, okay, where's, how does this fit on this program? Because then once, if I can read it and say, oh, this is a Weekend America story, I'm immediately sucked in and I think, oh, this has got more chance. So just try and put your sense in a way, put your mind into what, the, what we're thinking, you know. Um, that's you know, sort of what I'd add. Other concrete things are, you know, for our program, check it hasn't been on NPR recently, uh, because we will, and nothing's more annoying than we say yes, and it's a really good story, and then you know, we just find out it was on, a similar story was on last week. Um, other things, you know, if it's, make sure if it's relevant, put that high up and don't bury time facts. Uh, you know, we, we will eventually get to it, but if it has to be on this weekend, just tell us, and then we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll make sure that it is this weekend. So it's just sort of sort of it's common sense, really. There's no there's no art. But you don't bury your lead. You you want to grab. I mean, everyone reads all the pitches, right? But you want to grab somebody pretty early on. Yeah, the the, the system we have, we have uh, me and two editors, and every Monday morning, we just put all the pitches in one document, and they're normally about 40 or 50. And that we read them beforehand, and then we spend about two hours going through them. So we read everything that comes in, but obviously, you know, the, the, the ones that grab you more, the, the, the not sure ones are the ones we discuss. You know, if we get a 15-page document, we're unlikely to get to the end of that. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're only human, so we'll only read one or two pages. I, yeah, I think one of the helpful things that maybe, I'm not sure if you haven't worked on, if you haven't been a staff producer on a show, is maybe understanding, and at least this is how it works at This American Life, how a pitch, what process it goes through. Um, so basically, when somebody pitches to me, what I have to do is get it to a point of where I can turn around and pitch it to the rest of our staff in our weekly story meeting. And every Monday morning, everybody gets together, and then we go, we talk about our upcoming shows, uh, if we've got new stories for upcoming shows, and then if we've just got new pitches in general that we could maybe 
keep in mind, build other stories, or build other shows around that kind of thing. So I need to pitch your pitch to the seven other people that I work with. So a lot of times when I get your pitch, if I think that it's good and, and, and it's something that could work for us and it's and something that's, you know, it's there, usually what, I'll, what I want to do is I'll email back and forth with you a little bit just to try and get more details, just to try and make it more concrete because I, I have a really good idea of how all of those, all of the, my coworkers are going to respond. I know what their questions are going to be. I know what their concerns are going to be. I know, so those are the things I'm gonna to put to you just so I have everything I can possibly have before I go into our staff meeting on Monday morning to turn around and pitch it to everybody else. So I might email with you asking you a couple more questions about just details about the story, how you think it could work, um, you know, just more ideas, like what else happens. If there's something that you think is surprising that I think is actually really expected, I'll ask you those questions to see if you can like defend them because I'm gonna have to turn around and defend those as well. But basically what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to advocate for you. I, if I'm gonna take your story into the story meeting, I want the rest of the staff to sign on to it as well. So I'm trying to do everything I can to get your pitch in the best shape possible to then take it to everybody else and explain it to them. Um, so anyway, so that's the process it goes at. Then we open it up in the story meeting. Um, Jane Feltis and Lisa Pollock, who are two of the producers I work with who are here right now. And like, this is, like, these guys will then be like, well, I don't understand, like, you know, but then she just, you know, a lot of times, like, it'll come down to, like, the, like a certain character, and they'll be like, she just seems crazy. Like, she just, you know, like, I don't understand. Like, and she's unlikable, and, like, who cares and stuff. And so it'll be, like, things like that. But, I, like, generally, I usually anticipate that those are going to be concerns. And so that's what I mean. Like, I might email you back and be like, she seems crazy. And have you, like, defend and be like, I know it's crazy, but actually it's sort of this really real thing. And Anyway, if, if you have some sort of way of humanizing people, things like that, anyway, so that's what we do. And then in the story meeting, we'll decide kind of a thumbs up or thumbs down on, on how to do it. Yeah, one of the questions we always ask at Outfront is, why should I care? Uh, and I think that actually is a test for all kinds of stories and all kinds of situations. What's your process, Chris? Uh, sorry? What, what's your process? At, Probably uh, a little more, in, in some ways, a little more informal with, with sort of uh, pitches from independents and freelancers. Um, what tends to happen is they come into any number of producers on the show, have sort of relationships with people, or anyone can basically pitch to anyone. What usually happens is someone says, oh, I think this looks good, and then either hands it to me to look at, or if people pitch to me, I either like it or I don't like it, and then I give it to at least one other person on the show to find out how they feel about it. I usually try to choose the person who thinks least like me on the program because you know, I don't think it should be governed by my taste in, entirely. And I think one of, the, one of the good things about our show is it's very eclectic. It has a very broad, um, you know, it, it should in a perfect universe really be all things considered rather than a very narrow spectrum of views. Um, so, yeah, we sort of toss them back and forth informally and sort of, you know, email back and forth and, uh, you know, uh, um, basically try to reach a consensus amongst ourselves as to whether we think this is something investing, you know, time and energy in. Mm. Yeah, you know, our, our system, we actually, uh, I suppose we've got a federal mandate. We, we got, you know, we're a startup, we've got money from CPB. And 40% of our output has to be from independent producers. You know, we've got a relationship with AIR, we've got... Uh, you know, relationship with various uh, programs around the thing. So we're trying to, you know, we, we, you know, we have one of our things, we have to at the end of the year say we have run 40 to 50% of output from independence. So, 
it's a bit more. So we, we're charting that, and you know, we're making sure that we're, we're we're doing that thing. So our process is the three of us sit and we go yes, no, and then we have a, a bigger meeting of the senior editorial staff when we discuss. Uh, sort of a la Julie, much more of, okay, how are we going to do this? What's the angle we're going to take? Where would it fit in the program? And where it fits in the program decides what length it is. So when we get back to you with a, with a yes or a maybe, we need, we'll, we'll be more clear of the sort of information that we need. So we, unlike Julie, we will, we will do the, as it were, the, 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 the questions in-house and then get back and then get back to you. And then you'll start an email conversation. I think when you're pitching, uh, you often wonder, how much detail should I put in this pitch? Yeah, actually, I even wrote a note to myself of detail. I, um, for me, a lot of detail is helpful um, because when I pitch your story in the story meeting, I basically will pitch your story um, in the most anecdotal and entertaining way and narrative way possible. And so if you can imagine like going to a bar with your friends and telling them a story, you'll tell them a story that has all of the sort of anecdotes and details and, and funny, anything like that's funny or particularly sad, anything that's emotional, you'll use all of those mo moments in telling your story to your friends. And I need those moments to tell the stories to the rest of the producers on the show. So any details that you can add that make your story emotional, either funny or sad or, or interesting, but um, they're helpful for me to then turn around and, and pitch the story to the, everybody else. And also, it, it lets me know that, that you understand what makes a solid story. And it makes me understand, it, it gives me a sense of, 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 what you, of what your sensibility is as well. So I, I, I think details are important. Are you looking for like 10 pages or? I don't, I don't totally mind a long pitch. I really don't. Um, because eventually I'm gonna ask you for it anyway. So um, I, for, for me personally, I would longer, is better than shorter. Um, <laughs> Chris, Jeremy, um, amount of detail. I mean, I, I think it could, it can vary. I can actually think in, of of one case where he had like just a great one-line pitch, which was, uh, um, or at least the original inquiry was a one-line inquiry about. It was during the election last year, and, and if I remember rightly, Dave Miller, who's uh, on the independent producer, sent me a thing that just said, "Hey, I'm going to go to this." Uh, this, this church in Iowa, which has a prayer group, and they're talking about politics, evangelical church, and they're talking about politics and faith. And uh, there's going to be great tape. And I thought, well, this was so pertinent, people were talking about it, and it was sort of, you know, it was a grabbing pitch. And I said, sure, go find out, you know, if you get great tape, we'll be really interested in the piece. Other times you can be sent, uh, you know, just this week, I read a really good sort of 10-page pitch, and it, frankly, the first paragraph was so great that it kept me reading right the way through 10 pages. I'm with you. I like some detail. I, I think that a little bit of flesh on the bones. I mean, I think we want great stories. We want people who are natural storytellers who can really draw listeners in, and uh, I think you have to provide, in most cases, you have to provide some sense that you can really carry a story and you understand how you're going to tell your story. Yeah, I think the key thing about detail is great and anecdotes are great as long as they're relevant. You know, if it's, uh, it's that thing that uh, Neil said, if I digress and you go off on some story for th three pages, which is nothing to do, it's got nothing to do with the focus of the pitch or, or think that's, you know, and the piece in might only be four minutes. It's sort of, it's a relevant detail really. Uh, that's, you know, personally. 
I'd say one thing about that. I, you know, I think length of pitch is often related to length of piece. I mean, you know, you don't want to write a 10-page pitch for a two-minute piece. Um, you know, so there's a certain kind of connection, uh, connection and relationship there between the stakes are much lower for a, you know, for a shorter story. I and mean, frankly, you stand, you know, if, if you pitch a shorter piece, you stand way more chance of us saying yes to it than if you pitch a longer piece. The longer the piece, the higher the bar, and the more you have to prove all of the things that Julie's talking about in terms of your ability to, 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 to know the telling details. Yeah, people are, in a lot of cases, just trying to get their foot in the door, aren't they? Uh, and in those situations, you don't want to be too ambitious in, in what you're proposing. Would yeah, you? I mean, I think that that's one of the biggest things that I see that's problematic is that people who have never pitched to us before will pitch us, you know, five-part series of 12 and a half minute pieces, for example, or something like that. And that's, that's an awfully big commitment for us. It's a big commitment in terms of time and a big commitment in terms of money. And, you know, the best way to get your foot in the door is to do... You know, something, something, something shorter, something that involves less of an inv less of an investment or risk on both on both ends. I, I remember, I don't think it was his first piece by any means, but you know, a couple of years back, uh, Matt Ozag, who I, I think now works for StoryCorps, did a little piece about this uh, weird sort of African American rabbit hunt down in Florida, um, where basically what happens is um, after the sugarcane fields are burnt, the rabbits all come out. And these guys, for as long back as anyone knows, have, have gone and shot the rabbits at that point. It's a huge kind of festival in this town. And it was just a minute 45 of great tape of people telling the story of this festival, a little bit of Americana that you'd never heard of, absolutely compelling, grab listeners by the throat. We had hundreds of letters. I mean, literally, I think we did have hundreds of letters. If you ever want to get hundreds of letters, you just have to be cruel to animals, actually. So maybe that's not a fair <laughs> way of actually <laughs> assessing, its, assessing its impact. But, um, you know, it's an example that length and impact are not necessarily, uh, you know, in, in, in an obvious relationship to each other. It's a little bit different, I would say, for This American Life, just in terms of ambition. If you're saying what I want to do is, um, I want to go to some, I, there's, there's, there's a, 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 some writer's colony convention or something and it's lasting over the course of six weeks and I, I just think it's interesting and I want to go there and follow what happens to these writers over the course of six weeks. That for us is, 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 is no because both, you know, you haven't done anything like this before. Like, you know, you would need equipment. You would need us helping you along. We don't have six weeks to devote to it, that kind of stuff. So, and there's no characters. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, that doesn't seem like there's any conflict. Like, there's no narrative. Like, I just couldn't do it. On the other hand, if there's something of where you say, I really think that this is a really large documentary about this town that I'm from, that I grew up in, and it's you know in southern Alabama, and there's this huge battle that's going on and stuff, but it's going to take like two weeks to document the whole thing and watch as it lays out. But I know that there are certain you know my mom's best friend is one of the council members, like that kind of thing. Like you have a reason to be there, but it's more ambitious than you can do. That I've never done anything like this before. We do have the staff and we do have the resources and we will send somebody with you to do it. So I wouldn't totally think just because you feel like overwhelmed by it and you wouldn't personally know how to do the whole thing by yourself to not pitch it to me. Um, also, we have de definitely been in situations too of where we would say, I don't, I think this is probably beyond what you can do 
but we'll pay you a producing slash finder's fee, and we're going to give this to somebody else, usually to one of our staff producers, to report, but we're going to have you, usually what we do in those situations is have you go out with the person and act as their producer. And so you help them put the whole story together. You're there for all of the interviews. You're involved in structuring the story and the edits down the line, but you're not actually the one who's reporting the story, but you get paid a producing fee to do it. And also, it's a really great experience in terms of being um, involved from start to finish on the ins and outs of putting together a 25-minute documentary. Mm. Jeremy, working with people who you've never heard of? Yeah, well, you know, we're trying to encourage it. We've got a, you know, an intern program. We are trying to encourage it. It's, it's difficult. It, I, think, um, I think a lot of people who, well, certainly when I did it, a lot of people who are just starting off, they collect tape anyway. Uh, and then they'll think, okay, tape, I've got a story. So I think quite often you're just not experienced enough to know what the best tape is. You might think it's this because you might think that's what they want to hear, but actually it might be someone else. So... You know, tell us if you've got tape. Um, we, we, we won't listen to three hours' worth of tape, but we can say, look, well, you know, I was speaking to someone, they've got an interview with uh, their uncle who uh, went over. He, was, um, he, escaped the, uh, he escaped pre-war. He was a German Jew and went back and spied for the American government post-war. And she had a, an hour-long interview, and I just said, look, why don't we just cut it down 20 minutes, and I'll listen to the 20 minutes, and we'll see, see if it's... See if it's worth putting on because it's an interesting story, and uh, you know it's the sort of thing we like to do. So, mention if you've got tape. You know, um, Jim Gates is there. He, you know, he will listen. He he listens to a lot of raw tape, a lot of, and and sometimes you just don't quite know what the story is. You know, you've got something, and it, it needs more experienced people. You know, we all need it, and we we come in from the field and we say, well, there's something there. I don't know what it is. Can you help me? Um, and we can do that. But if, we, if the pitch doesn't say, and it slightly intrigues us, and it doesn't say we've got tape, well, it's more likely to be a no, um, I would say. And I think the tape is one thing that's changed dramatically in the last few years now. You can send files so easily. I mean, it used to be you had to pay the 15 bucks for the FedEx to send the whatever to listen to the tape. Now, if you've got tape, you can you know, send it in an MP3 or whatever, and we can listen to it basically right then and there. And often that's really the deciding you know, feature. It's hearing that there's a, you know, even one core soundbite that someone has sent for the first interview that they're do proposing for a story can be, the, can be the thing that sells it to you because you can say, wow, this person understands what a great cut of tape is and they know how to record it. And uh, you know, it, really, it really helps, again, give you a sense that you're going to be able to execute the project and that it's going to be a good collaboration. And it is a collaboration. It is a collaboration. I mean, I think we all want to invest a lot of time, effort, and energy in 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 in, in working with you know with independent producers and, and bringing great projects to air. One thing on our show that really um, often is a barrier is when people are pitching something that has already happened. Uh, something that's already happened. The story is set entirely in the past because. If you haven't been gathering tape, then you have to pull that story out in different ways in retrospect, but it has, it, you don't really have that opportunity to have scenes unfolding in, in, before your ears. I don't know how you guys feel about stuff that's already happened already. For us, that's the majority of our stories around the show are stories that have happened in the past, so that's right. actually not much of a concern. Uh -huh. That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think we run quite a lot. We run a lot of commentaries that are obviously stories that have run in the past. Oh. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it, 
past or present, it doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a good story, and if you've got a sense of, you know, you can work out how you can tell it in, in a way that's radio-friendly, and that's, that's ultimately what's important. Sure. Yeah, one of the reasons I, I used to work in, in news a lot, and one of the reasons I left news is that there'd be a news event, and you'd preview it so much that when the actual event happened, everybody would be bored. Uh, and, he, and things, the, when you're doing something, that's when exciting things happen. It's not the run-up to it. You, you, you know, there's a, there's a climax, so things happen in the past that are sort of more interesting in a funny sort of way because there's, a, there's an ending and you can, you can read things into it rather than just endlessly sort of thinking, oh, there's something going on this weekend. Well, let's hear our first pitch. Uh, Dacia, is it Herb Ulock? Dacia Herb Ulock. Yeah. Uh, and you're from Twin Cities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for being brave. And making <laughs> me go first. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Okay, my pitch. Um, I, my great-grandfather, his name is Angelo Carinci, and he was born in a small town in Italy. And he emigrated to America, and he never went back. And my grandfather, before he died, um, talked to me about a trip that he went back. He went back 30 years ago to this small town. He was there for 45 minutes, um, and he knew of one relative, and he found that one relative who has since died. Um, my grandfather passed away uh, two years ago. Before that time, I have tape um, with him of him describing his trip to this village of him describing um, what he found there. And he didn't know the names of any of the children of the uncle that we knew. He didn't, basically the, the thread stopped there. So, um, but he was uh, very interested in having me go back. Once he found out that I was interested in traveling back to Italy and trying to find our family, he asked about nothing else before he died up to the time when he passed away. So this summer I did go. Um, and all I had was the name of a few towns and a family name, which is really very common in that region. And I had a photograph of a stone house with a staircase on the outside, which was the house where my great-grandfather was born. And my grandfather told me that um, that house had been demolished, but that was one of the only landmarks that I had. Um, and I also had the photographs from that trip from 30 years ago. Um, so I went back with just those things, and I rented a car, and I drove around. Um, I ended up having a, a helpmate, the woman at the reception desk of the hotel I stayed in the first night said, oh yeah, tomorrow's my day off, uh, I'll take you around, we'll, we'll, we'll find something. Oh, and my cousin, my cousin's a cop, and he, he can look up in the registry, you know, I'll get, you know, tell, what's the name, what's the name of this guy, okay, we'll see if we can find an address, and, you know, of course there was no address because it was, um, it's such a rural area that there's just one tiny road, and it's the name of, you know, the road is the name of the town, so he's somewhere on that road. It's like the, the, the Carinci house on the road to Banyara. That's the, it was his address, so of course, you know, all of these farms. So, um, but I managed to, um, through a series of things that happened, um, uh, tracking down through archival documents and stuff, I found the names of his kids, and I found, and found my, my family, so, and, and the house was, um, was still there, so I have the photograph now of me in front of the place where uh, my great-grandfather was born. So. Great. So a uh, um, story of dis rediscovering your, your roots. Uh, can you give Desha some feedback on that? Do you want me to start? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> um, it's nice because it's like a story like that is really nice in that, that you're setting out to do something and you're setting out to find something. But it doesn't, but what you want to know is what's at stake in terms of what you find out. And, and, it, and it's unclear in, in the story that you've pitched, like what does it matter whether you find it or not? And, and I think stories also too about your family and stories about, um, especially stories about like sort of a, a personal family history, they're, they're hard to do from, from a producing 
perspective and a reporting perspective because they're so interesting to you and they're interesting to your family members, but very, very often there is a huge wall around that and they're not interesting to anybody else because, you know, everyone's just like, but why, why would I care? You know, like, we could all do it, you know what I mean? So I think that, like, those are rough stories to do and you have to think of the entire time, like, what either... What's at stake that makes this bigger, that makes people want to know what's going to happen and want to keep on listening and find out what's going to happen? Or two, you want to try and make stuff happen while you're on the road, you know, and, and know that, that things are going to come, that you're going to have scenes and moments and anecdotes that are going to affect you emotionally. Um, so I think, like, if you had sent a pitch like that to me, um, probably what my feeling would have been is that it's unclear what's at stake. Like, I don't see what, what matters is, is, to you or to your family or, or in a larger sense. That would probably, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think, I agree. I, was, I wrote down, I, I, I'm not clear about the relationship with you had your grandfather. Was that, why are you going? Uh, is it because it was his last wish? And that sort of thing. So I think, and also I'm thinking, who's the central character in this? Um, just off the, the short pitch, is it you? Is it your grandfather? Is it what the people you discovered in Italy? Is it the the concierge, you know, or the or the cop? I think it needs, you know, it needs a cent the characters there. Yeah, I mean, I I very much agree with you. Actually, I I, I wrote down. What's the revelation here? What is it, what is it that's going to make this story interesting? What are you going to discover? What are you going to find out? Um, you know, what, what was the process of the journey for you? Um, uh, but I, I thought you were absolutely spot on, actually. Is going someplace, going on a, some sort of journey, is that intrinsically um, useful or not useful for storytelling? Or is that, what do you guys think? Going on a journey? Yeah. Is it, is it um, useful for storytelling? I mean, it's a classic storytelling sort of conceit, um, but, you know, if you think of the way, like, fiction is structured, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost always, like, there's almost always a journey a lot of times, and, but, but things are happening along the way, you know, and when it's fiction, you can make it up. Um, so I think, like, when you're doing reporting, like, that's what you want to make sure is that things are happening along the way. A difficulty sometimes on those kind of stories, too, is that... Um, I had somebody, I was, I was emailing back and forth for a while with somebody about a story pitch that they had about a friend of theirs who was Vietnamese, and uh, they, uh, you know, they came over, you know, the, like in the airlift, and um, her, her, she came over with her father and her brothers and sisters, and her mother, the idea was that the mother was supposed to meet them along the way, and, and she never did, and she never knew if there was there were several different parts of the family lore. Did the mother, um, did she die um, uh, when trying to get airlifted out? Did um, she purposely abandon them? That was one of the stories that was told, that she didn't want to have the kids anymore, and she purposely abandoned them and stayed back in Vietnam. Um, another one was that she was murdered by um, North Vietnamese soldiers. They never, and, and, and her father had actually told her all three of these different versions at various points in her life. And so now she's going to go back to Vietnam and she wants to try and track down and find out what happened to her mother. And even a, a story like that, ultimately, I think ultimately that story wasn't going to work because 
with a lot of back and forth, I, I, I came to realize that there was no, she was probably never going to find out what happened to her mom. Like, she didn't have anyone really to talk to. Like, the, the question probably wasn't going to get answered when she was there. But also, too, like, the question also of, like, well, what does it matter what happened to your mom? And every time we would talk about it, it would, it would head off very quickly into this sort of very um, kind of heady, ephemeral kind of like, well, it makes me feel different knowing that my mother, it didn't feel grounded in something of like, what did it matter the way that your mother died, you know? And of course, like, there's an obvious difference of like, does it matter if my mother abandoned me, you know, choose to abandon me or my mother was trying to get to me and couldn't. But I was looking for, well, there, were there moments in your, in your childhood and in your history, in, in, in growing up and stuff of where an answer to, to this question would have mattered, like where we could have a concrete moment of where it's clear why it's important. And there were, there were no moments like that. And it kind of just kept on then getting into sort of this kind of therapy, sort of uh, self, like my identity and stuff like that. And then it gets really hard because the story starts to kind of like collapse and collapse and collapse of where it just feels like you're listening in on somebody's kind of therapy session, you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like it's universal and open. It starts feeling more and more like you're just like, but it's, you know? Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I think in stories, personal stories too, the important thing is to know that the moments of revelation and the moments of where things are happening actually feel like they're, they're substantial and they're concrete enough as events that it doesn't just have this sort of like kind of wishy-washy sort of like, I don't know, it just kind of makes me feel weird or something, you know? Does it make a difference that there are scenes, you know, I taped the whole time I was there and I have um, sort of a uh, tape of my reflections along the different points as I was going through and, you know, so the, the whole, I have tape of that whole, I mean, the, for me the story is always in just the arc of, the, of what I've gotten. If I didn't have tape that I thought I could make a piece out of, you know, then I probably wouldn't pitch it because I know right. the family stuff is like, I, I mean, and that's why I was sort of cringing when I, you know, great-grandfather, grandfather, okay, how many times I'd have to mention my family members, right. but, you know, at the same time, as for being a short piece and for being just the, um, the sound and the experience of that, you know, basically that journey of the art because there's the, the, the tape from me the night when I'm like, okay, I don't think I'm going to find anything and, you know, and then there's the, the next day. So along the different steps, like there's the sort of there is a certain immediacy to the tape that I have. Well, I what, wait, what, what did those scenes, how, how do those scenes develop? How do they develop the story? How, how did you change in how you felt as you went along and recorded these different scenes? What, what is the arc there? Um, I think a lot of the reason that I went back is I'm an only child and um, we live far from any family. I've never really had a sense of any kind of roots whatsoever. And so it, it, I was asking myself, well, why am I doing this? But that was a huge driving part. And so to find, in the end, when I, when I did find the people that I connected with there, um, I was totally shocked by how immediately I felt a family connection to them, you know, that I felt like um, I had a place there with them, and which wasn't something I anticipated because they're basically strangers, you know. Um, so that, that was, for me, the, the um, going from just a kind of a, a casual, you know, I'm just going to go and see what I can find, sort of a more of a level of curiosity to being really an emotional connection that, that happened. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, and part, of, part of what we just heard was the kind of unpeeling the layers of the onion that you might do if, if uh, as a commissioning producer, you're not ready to say yes, but you're intrigued, right? You, you, you want to help find out whether there is something really here that uh, you, you want to engage in. Um, 
We've been taught, we've been framing this so far in terms of uh, the independent producer or freelancer. Uh, but of course, if you work on uh, a show staff, a large show staff, you're pitching your own stories uh, all the time. Does that make any difference in, in the process? Obviously, they're not written down, they're oral pitches. Because you probably have a, a pretty big staff, eh? Uh, well, we, Masses we, of amounts of people. Um, <laughs> We don't, actually. You should see it. We can barely get people around one table mo uh, many mornings. Um, we have a 10 o'clock meeting, which is a fairly, you know, it's a, it's, a, uh, a, it's a fairly interesting environment to go to walk into and, you know, pitch a story. Everyone's encouraged to pitch a story every day, uh, whether you're the intern or whether you're Robert Siegel, and your ideas are tested in exactly the same way. And, and you know, frankly, there's periods of time where uh, the interns are getting more stories on the show than I'm getting on the show or Robert's getting on the show. And, and uh, so there's a real kind of, you know, the, 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 there's a fair, it's fairly inquisitorial, but also a lot of fun and I think very good natured. Um, and, I mean, obviously, it's much easier pitching with, in some respects with people you know. And, you know, the one thing is everyone always starts their pitch with, this really isn't a very good story, but, you know. So, <laughs> that but, um, that convinces Which me. doesn't work if you're <laughs> pitching from outside. So you definitely get a... Um, I don't think it works from the inside, slack, actually. So. Yeah, we have, on our show, we have something called the bad idea. So it's like if anybody's got a, you know, Bad, an idea totally unfilled. This is a bad idea, and immediately out there, you just think oh, it's just a flyer, you know. So yeah, of course it's easier if you know people. They can hand you a piece of paper and say, "I think this is interesting." You can read it, and you can talk to them 20 minutes later and, and have a conversation. So, you know, th those are the, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, it's getting over those. It's yeah, I've worked on. Sorry. I was going to say, what, what I've learned from our meeting is that, you know, is, is, that the, is that it really is a process to coming to a good idea. Mostly people do not, the first go-round is not the story. It's, it's something that maybe is a little interesting, there's something there. And usually by the time you've like tossed it around, or sometimes it'll go away for 15 minutes in our meeting and then somehow come back and sort of mutate and change into something slightly different and someone else picks up the thread and you actually end up with those, you know, a really great moment for the show. And I think that that's... You know, that's something that I've learned about the whole process of sort of dealing with people who pitch into the show, which is, you know, it is, it is a two-way process, and you've got to be engaged in that process, and it's not like yes, no, in that kind of way. You've got to have uh, some kind of back and forth and often sort of seek out the little gem that's hidden in, uh, that's hidden in the piece of yeah. paper. I've got an anecdote, which is I got a pitch last week, and I think the, the key thing is if you can just hook one of the staff, just get something, just burrow your pitch into their brain, it might work. This was a pitch about uh, a person in Kansas who uh, he's, uh, teaches um, doctors, would-be doctors, and uh, he did a survey and he found out that 40% of his, his students believe in intelligent design, which is, which is interesting, and, but it's been around a lot in intelligent design, you know, there's this court case going on, and it didn't immediately grab me, but it, it stayed in my brain, and I kept on thinking about it, and it's interesting that no one knows what their doctors believe. I find that interesting. You know, do, is your doctor, does he believe in alternative medicine? Do they believe in God? Do they believe in evolution? All these things, it's a question you never ask your doctor, and so I think that's a more interesting question. So I'll probably go back to this person and say, look, you know, you can you investigate this? Uh, because I find it more interesting. It's that, that, that sort of going to and forth. That something will come out of that. They'll get some sort of work, and it won't be like the original pitch, but hopefully it will be you know, a better bit of radio. Or 
Yeah, just getting back, uh, we'll hear uh, Don's pitch in, in just a moment, but just getting back to that in-house pitch, uh, I've worked on lots of magazine shows with, you know, 10 plus people pitching. Uh, I th because you already know the show intimately and you don't have to introduce yourself, there's more of an onus to come with more than just a noun or a subject. You, you really need to have a clear idea of what you, how you're going to do this story, right? Uh, it's, n it's not enough to say, let's go down to New Orleans and speak to some people. You know, you, you <laughs> that ain't going anywhere. So you really, you, you have to have, a, and, and yeah, so you really have to um, think it through to step two and three to, to make it fly. Yeah. Uh, Dawn. Uh, there's a two-year residential drug treatment program in Durham, North Carolina, where I live. And there I facilitated a writing workshop with six women who are struggling with poverty, addiction, and mental illness. I recorded the sessions. Um, I have a piece of writing here by Jennifer Flynn. She's 24 years old. She had her first experience with drugs at the age of nine and entered her first drug treatment center when she was 18. I remember I was around six or seven years old. My mother was a dope fiend and I had just been molested by her and her boyfriend. At my grandmother's house, I had my own room, a big room with a queen-size bed. I used to lay in that bed by myself with the door open just enough for a little bit of light to creep in. And there was a picture on the wall in front of me above the TV. I did not know it at the time, but it was a picture of Mother Mary or Virgin Mary kneeling down by a fountain with flowers. But for some reason, every night I would look at that picture and my heart would pitter-patter faster and faster. And I'd be scared because it looked as though she was coming to life and I thought she would try and hurt me. Outside the window, you could hear the city, the cars going up and down the street, the people talking, shoes clacking, music bumping, and I used to just lay there for hours trying to go to sleep. If you hang around drug treatment centers enough, you know that there's a common language of recovery. It almost borders on cliche. Um, the piece will begin with this common language of recovery and then move into the way that art and metaphor emerge from the specificity of the women's experiences. And I'm really committed to this idea of not just writing as therapy, but writing as transformative art. Um, and I'm interested in telling stories about poverty, addiction, and mental illness in a different way and using the art of writing to give voice to women who are normally culturally stereotyped. Thanks. Who'd like to start? Julie, go, please. <laughs> the fact that, 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 that you want to approach stories uh, about addiction and abuse in a different way, I think is, is incredible and, and necessary and, and great because it's one of, I get to pitch a lot of stories that, that are about, um, a lot, about addiction, recovery, abuse, and it's really hard, they're really hard stories to do because ultimately, it's hard to find the surprise in them. It's like everything was going fine, and then I started doing drugs, and then I lost my job, and then I lost my money, and then I lost my house, and then my wife and kids left me, and then I was out on the street, and I was like doing that for five years, and eventually I got involved in a rehab program. And it's just like, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> it's awful, it's awful, but it's not surprising. Like. That's why they tell us not to do drugs, you know? I mean, like, you're just like, I know. Um, <laughs> I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's really, they're, they're hard stories to tell, and, um, and, and it's hard to find the surprise in them. And also, too, um, 
it sort of gets to a certain point where a lot of those stories, I feel like they sort of turn into like, I don't know the right word for it, but it's almost like, it's like porn almost in a way. Like people just, you just wanna, it's just, it just gets dirtier and dirtier and sadder and sadder and like, grow, you know, like, okay. But there's like, there's like nothing more to it, you know what I mean? And, and not to say that like, you know, it can't be, you know, like all porn, it can't be done well, but like, <laughs> it, it's just like, you know, the, it gets, it's a, it's a format that gets tired after a while. So, so I think that that is a great idea. Um, specifically your story for, for a show like ours is not right for a show like ours because there aren't really specific characters in a narrative and in a conflict. It's, it would be more, that story would be more right for This American Life if you were just like, um, here's Jennifer and she's gone through this whole process and she's done all of this writing and then she says that none of it has helped her. It's only dredged up all of these things in the past that she never wanted to think about anymore. In fact, it's made her more depressed and what she's doing right now is she's fighting with the head of this program and they're going to, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's happened. Oh, really? <laughs> well, that may be the story then. <laughs> that may be the story, honestly, because and, and then that would be more appropriate for us. But but um, I think that there are a lot of shows that would that that would though that your story would be right for. Um, but but it, it starts off concrete and then it gets into more of where I think like you would have. The way that you're pitching it right now would be like more of like it would be the the people in the program talking, but it would then also be experts talking and and people who work with them talking, and it gets more into like sort of a feature piece that that moves less away from being like a strict narrative with with characters and conflict, and and so that's what wouldn't totally be right for us. Um, yeah, I, I think you know. Thank you for pitching. I think, I think that you've chosen two of the hardest things to try and you know, concentrate on. Stories about drugs and then stories about art. Right. Uh, you know, both of them, you have to, you know, it's like at the moment, I'm not accepting any stories about Katrina, not because I'm not interested in Katrina, but the bar is so high. I've heard so many stories about Katrina that I'm, you know, I'm just saying it has to be wonderful. And I think that's the, the difficulty in this story inherently from what I see. You know, if you're going to treat it as a drug story, what's new about this drug story? Uh, and if you're going to treat it as an art story, are, are these people artists? Are they really, are they, you know, are they, and then you have to put it through, and are they proper artists? Are they, you know, can you put all those filters you say artists? So I think, you know, good luck. <laughs> well, the way I want to tell the story, too, it's, I'm always so inspired by Third Coast, and, and I want to try and construct the story in an artistic way, and I don't know that experts would have any part in it and I do think, because I taught the writing workshop, my voice would probably be, you know, a, par a part of it. But I certainly respect, you know. I what think the thing saying. is, you know, the, the, it's what Julie said. What's the story? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, we yeah. haven't, you know, on the pit, we haven't quite got to the story. Is it the mm -hmm. writing or is it the the character? You know, that's the thing that Great. I'm sure if we sat down for 20 minutes, we could work it out. And it does sound as if you may have a really interesting story that's there, that's just outside the side right. of the, the frame, which is, you know, often the case. And, and I think sometimes, you know, I think the question of whether you put yourself into the story essentially as a reporter versus trying to tell the story in the voices of people is a really important decision that may make the difference between something that is, that feels a little bit cliched and something that could feel fresh. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, 
again, maybe I shouldn't say this, but there's, I was listening to Blake's story about Go yesterday, which is a really nice story, and I thought a really lovely, beautifully produced um, story. And then I was really struck though by something in the discussion afterwards, which is where he told the story of actually how the 85-year-old woman, I think it was in this thing, had loved beating up on the seven-year-old in, right. in, in the thing. And it totally changed the nature of that right, story. Right, this right. went from being a story about this change, unchangingness of sort of, you know, cultural traditions to being a story about right. this woman who's a little bit kind of, you know, vengeful or something else is kind of going on here. And I thought maybe there was a more interesting story there if there was a narrator, a reporter, mm -hmm. than if it was being told strictly through sound mm -hmm. and through the voice of the subject of the story. And I think that that's one of the most important things to weigh when you think about these kinds of um, stories. As I say, I like the story as it was, but, uh, yeah. but I, I just wondered if there was another more, maybe more interesting or more challenging, more edgy story there to be got at. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How do you deal with pitches you can't decide on? It's either yes or it's not yes, it's not no. Think about it. Procrastinate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, drag them out forever. <laughs> and, and, okay, <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, you can't take a chance on every story, but what what would factor into your taking a chance on a particular pitch? Um, for me, uh, for us, I think a lot of it is, is, as I said a little bit earlier, is to do with the length and the sort of complexity of the of, of the story. It's much easier. Robert Siegel said something to me when I when I first went to became the senior producer at, at All Things Considered. He said. An audience will deal, uh, our listeners will, will accept four minutes of almost anything under the sun. They'll forgive us for four minutes of anything. They won't forgive us for 12 minutes of, I can't remember the exact word you used, but 12, 12 minutes of crap was the essential. So, you know, there, there's a kind of calibration there, which is it's much easier, particularly in a very heavily formatted show like ours, to take a risk at a shorter length than it is to take a risk on a big, long you know, a big long piece. So to some degree, that, that's, that's sort of part of the calibration. Yeah, we'll do things also too, um, if we're not positive and, and maybe there could be something there, but if it, it, it could be, it could be maybe a little bit clearer if we just do one interview, then, then we'll be more likely to say like, you know, it's $120 of studio time. Why don't we do an interview and just see how it goes and then we'll decide yeah. after that. And sometimes we, you know, we get things in on spec where we're taking the risk, and we, we sort of, we're sort of upfront about it. We, maybe we say to the producer, this, we're getting this on spec, it might not get to air. We hope it does, we'll try our best, but it just might not work. Um, you know, there's no harm in stuff being killed. Stuff's being killed in-house the whole time. You know, don't, if, if, if your piece, you file your piece, it doesn't make air, it's, 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 there's no harm, there's no shame in that. It's just, you know. Just getting back to, to Don's pitch, I'm sure if, she'd had her druthers, she wouldn't have read that little sample clip of uh, her subject. Yeah. Uh, but um, do you ever get pitches where somebody will send you, you know, a 30-second, one-minute clip of their chief character, and does that make any difference in, in what you think? Does that ever happen? Yeah, it happens all the time. Helpful or Very no? helpful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think good tape, you can sell a story on good tape alone. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that, that is very often a deciding, you know, a deciding factor. Okay. Um, and uh, we're going to get to our final pitch from, uh, from Peter Crimmins. Is he here? Great. 
So you just get set, and uh, I just want to ask about saying no. Um, <laughs> how do you do that on your shows? Well, I mean, how much detail do you get into? I don't know. I just... It's sort of a question I really want to put out. I was thinking about this. How do I... There are lots of devices of saying no. And, you know, we never say, God, this is a really boring pitch. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. What do you want to... The thing is, it's more, it's more of what do you want to know? We always do two or three line feedbacks of what we think of the story is. But uh, it's a sort of question. I'm sure we'll put it out later. But I, I want to know what you want. Do you want brutal honesty? Do you want sort of to be let down gently? It's, it's sort of... It's difficult because it's sort of... It's a, I don't know. That's no, a good question. I'd be curious to know what people want. Yeah. Um, how many people would be would prefer just flat out brutal honesty? Oh, you say Are that you now. Sure? <laughs> you say that now. Are you sure? <laughs> Constructive honesty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah obviously, right. it's got to be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Okay. So if, if we all come back next year, will you all be putting your hands up? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to need unlisted phone numbers. <laughs> okay, your pitch. That rather puts me on the spot, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I'm, this is a piece about um, destroying things that are held sacred. It's, it's a piece about books. and Because I think most of us are brought up or bred to believe that um, books should be respected. You don't mark them. You don't dog-ear them. You don't crease them. And so when the opportunity arises to, to mess with a book, it's irresistible. Uh, a few years ago, the San Francisco Public Library, uh, a vandal was quietly attacking their books. He was smuggling a very large knife into the library and methodically seeking out gay and lesbian titles using a card catalog. And uh, he would slash the pages. He would carve little shapes into the covers, little almond or eye-shaped things. And he would, uh, as I said, do gay and lesbian tiles. He actually, it was thought that he used the card catalog because he also um, attacked a book about the Enola Gay. <laughs> and, um, and books by Peter Gay. So he was um, determined, but maybe indiscriminate. Um, so the library, uh, he, he got 600 books in the end. They piled up in the basement of the library before they caught him. He was uh, tried and convicted of a vandalism with a hate crime enhancement. He was fined. He got community service. He wasn't put in jail at all, though. Uh, so the library had this big pile of books in the basement. They didn't know what to do with them. They had to throw them away because the uh, head of um, book maintenance, what is it called? Um, people who takes, takes care of the books. Uh, not the librarian, the person who actually fixes <laughs> broken books. No, there's a name for you it. You got about 30 seconds. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, they, he said, the, the person said, we can't put it back on the shelf. So the librarian had to throw them away. He didn't want to do it because he felt that the books were filled with hate. He had this sense that uh, because this sort of crime of vandalism was put upon them, he, couldn't, he didn't feel comfortable completing the task of the vandal of destroying the books by throwing them away. So he... Uh, he contact a bunch of artist friends, um, book artists, people who make art out of books. And he said, um, can you do something with these? And we'll hold an exhibit. We'll, we'll, we'll send out books, one to an artist. We'll mail them out, anyone who wants one. You send back what you make of it. 
and we'll have an exhibit, and we'll call it Reversing Vandalism, and that's what they did. And it was a very healing thing, and everyone who came said it was, that it was successful in reversing the vandalism. So, um, but uh, to make a book into art, you really have to completely destroy it. Um, the vandal sort of would slash them, and some of the artists, the book artists, said that uh, one of the artists was a, f a former librarian in the South in, in a poorer, uh, okay. Um, anyway, I'll skip that. You had to completely destroy the book. So, because um, uh, a lot of people pulped it, they would cut it into 100 pieces, they would rip it apart and reassemble it. And so, um, where the slash books were only slightly damaged, these were completely damaged. So the artists that I talked to actually took a great deal of pleasure in it. Um, they said um, it was sort of a satisfying and perverse pleasure to take a power saw to a book or, or an axe or whatever they did, flame. Okay. Um, okay. Can, can we, I, think, I think we probably have enough information to give you some mm -hmm. feedback. I'm okay. Because uh, we do want to get to that. I, I, the first question that occurs to me is I'm a little unclear exactly what the focus is of, of, of here. How, how you imagine this story in your head, how you would tell it for radio. What's important here? Is it the is it the crime? Is it the is it what the artists are doing with the books? Uh, what I'm trying to draw a parallel between the artists and the vandal because they both uh, made their mark, made an expressive mark on the books. One was uh, illegal, and the other was condoned by the library. But fundamentally, I'm wondering what the difference is really between the crime and the healing. I think you, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, what you're trying to do is, in this piece, explore an idea. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you're trying to explore the idea of what it means to, you know, destroy a book. Um, and so I think that the, the difficulty is, is exploring ideas is fantastically hard. It's quite easy through conversation, a bit harder through features and, and characters and stuff like that. So whether you have two characters talking to each other, one who, who sort of has destroyed books and quite enjoys it just for the sake of it. Or, you know, the, it's, I, I'm trying to explain, it's, it's a hard feature. There doesn't seem to be any central character here. And when you're exploring something that's an idea... I mean, you'll, you're going to get to the point in your piece of where you're just going to have a lot of people talking. And, like, mm -hmm. nothing's going to be laying out in anecdotes or in, in scenes or yeah. in stories, you know what I mean? So then, ultimately, I think it's going to feel a little bit like a panel discussion, which, as entertaining as this is, <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants mm -hmm. to hear it on the radio. Um, so you know what I mean? Like, like I think it's just going to get, it, it's, not, it's not entertaining. Like, no. it feels kind of arty. Well, I, I, disagree. I, I disagree that it could be entertaining. Really? You know, yeah, you know. I mean, well, you okay, have panel like, discussions have on the people, radio the whole time. But if you have people like just kind of, yeah, but they're talking about substantial things. And this, like, what are you going to be talking yeah. about? Yeah. Like, I really enjoyed the transgressive nature of trying yeah. to find a book. It, it's like, so, yeah, it's so kind of, yeah, exactly. It's so kind of abstracted and, you know, it, it's, you can't even see the book. I mean, how would you, you know, how, when you imagine the first scene of this piece, what is the scene that you imagine? Scene. I, I would imagine launching into the story of the library and letting it unfold that the uh, launching the story of the library. Who's and, the first voice we're going to hear in the piece? Uh, the curator who, um, who discovered the books. I would look for the emotion in the story. I think that's partly what would drive it uh, from idea to, to storytelling. 
Yeah, I could see the beginning of the piece feels like it could actually lay out. I could totally see like the moment of like just like telling the story of like just starting to discover the books, getting to the point of where they start discovering that like the Enola Gay was also destroyed. You know, like that all feels mm -hmm. like that. Like I can easily see the narrative of that laying out. It's when you get to the next step that I think like if you actually think about the way the story is going to lay out, like where are you going to go and what's going to be surprising like and if ultimately what people are going to say is like it was really fun to destroy these things that normally you're not supposed to destroy mm -hmm. you know what i mean like well i would you would sort of expect them to say that so that that doesn't feel that surprising and then like where do you go the next step and like well, you know what I, I think of bringing it around back to the vandal and mm -hmm. and how they feel a connection with that act of destroying that the vandal probably felt you gonna interview the vandal? I tried. Yeah. I tried. I'm still <laughs> trying. He's he's cagey, but he's still there. He's still in San Francisco. Okay. Thank thank you. Right. Uh, thank, thank you to all all of the three people who who pitched and to the those who who submitted pitches. That's great. Uh, I think we can take questions. Uh, if you have any, please. Edwin. I agree with, with uh, what has been told about pitching, but uh, it, it starts from the point of view that you expect a strong story, strong characters, surprise, but in my career as, as in Belgium as leading a feature department, it often happens that there was no story at all in the beginning. And I give one example. One guy, he wanted to uh, make a program about a gas oil station at night along a big highway. And the program was a marvelous, fresh of people on the road. Uh, so there was no, no idea. So I think in certain cases, you have also to trust people that something can, can come out of an idea just and find this subtle way between, uh, yes, trust and a kind of security for yourself as a, as a commissioning producer and not always expect that, like, uh, like you said, that the right idea or the right uh, character or story is there from the very beginning. Thank you. I understand. Can I just address yes, it really please. fast? Because I feel like I, I definitely understand that. And I know a lot of great stories have come that way. But I couldn't, in this position and specifically for this conference and what most people are doing, I couldn't more strongly disagree. I feel like those are stories and those are situations that happen to very, very experienced radio producers, unless you're incredibly lucky. But for the most part, you know, like, like diaries, I think we all get pitched a lot. Of, I don't know if you guys, I, I get pitched a lot of pitches for diaries from people who have never really produced diaries before. Diaries are incredibly hard to produce, and the producer is so involved. You have, I mean, to the point of where you're coming up against like real serious ethical questions about calling them a diary the producer is so involved, but most people don't see that. So it looks effortless, which is great and which is a wonderful aesthetic to it, but it is certainly not effortless at all. And it takes an incredibly experienced radio producer to put them together. And doing something like going out to like, you know, just a location and spending one day there as the people are coming and going also takes a very, very incredible, per incredibly experienced producer who can be constantly cutting the tape in their head as every single moment is happening and figuring out like what they're gonna end up with at the end and how things are gonna fit together. And so not to say that those things can't happen, but really I would only, there are very, very few producers 
who I work with, who I would ever take a pitch like that from. And those producers are one producers who I've produced several pieces together. And even then, those people who have like won tons of awards and do very well and are great reporters, I wouldn't take a pitch that was just taught, that was just like, I just want to go out there and see what happens. They still have to give me a sense of saying like, I've been there and here are the kinds of things that I expect are going to happen. And these are the kinds of things I think that are going to come out. And these are the things that I'm going for. Then I would be more open to it, but I really think it's very, very rare. All of that said, if you want to do it, you still can do it, and it's a good experience to try and do it and see what you end up with in the end, because I think like it's, at the very least, even if it doesn't work, it's a great learning experience, but pitching it to us, like, what do you want, like, you know, you're going to have to get your own equipment, and you're going to have to do it on your own time, but, you know, but there's, there's not to say that that can't happen, you know, and if you come out with something really great, then contact us and say, I have this tape and this is what I want to do. But, you know, something like the Transom website is a wonderful place to go if you want to try and do something on your own. You know, they tell you the equipment that you need. They tell you um, how to download Pro Tools, you know, like the very basics of how to, how to, how to begin editing, things like that. So, so you can do that stuff on your own, but I would, for us definitely, and I would venture for you guys too, like that, that we wouldn't, we just don't have the money and the resources and the time to take it. Hi. I have a request and then a question. Um, for you all and everybody else in here who receives pitches, if you're going to say no, can you just say no and not just vanish? Because <laughs> I think we've all been in the position where you send something in and you don't hear anything back at all. And that's hard because then you don't... If, even if it's no thanks, not for us, that's cool, because then I know I can take it someplace else. But I will continue to bug you just to make sure you've seen it. So I don't know if, if anybody else has had this experience. Point's well taken. Yeah. 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 We have a commitment to try and get back in two weeks, and you can hold me that, to that. That is, that is totally reasonable. It's the, the ones where you send it out, and you don't even know if it reached the right person, if anybody, you know, and you want to follow up. Um, my question is, how much does... Um, someone's estimate of the time that a piece would, would be, how much does that play into it? If I pitch you a four-minute piece or a seven-minute piece, is that, how does that affect the way that you look at it from the beginning? Or would you come back and maybe suggest, I don't think this is seven minutes, I think this could be four, or I think it could be 12? Uh, yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, very, very often things change in length. I mean, I think the, exa the, the example I cited of the one-line pitch was uh, the Dave Miller piece about this Iowa evangelical church that I think started off as a way longer piece, and then we basically said, hey, maybe it would work as a five-minute piece or a six-minute piece rather than it was originally intended, essentially, I think, at sort of not, not exactly mini-doc length, but certainly long segment length. So, yeah, things very often change from... And that's something you'd like to see in the initial pitch is... is the reporter's concept of what it what like, they're seeing. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really helpful to have a sense of, of, of how the reporter is conceptualizing what they're about to do. And again, I, I think it just helps you know, give you that, that, that trust, that sense that they understand what's involved in executing mm -hmm. this particular project. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks. Try and get as many of these in as possible. So if you can get to your question quickly. Yeah. Uh, my name is Taryn. And uh, you, Julie, you said that... Um, when we were talking about the, the personal story about going to Italy, you said, what does it matter? And I think most people who would be interested in doing stories would have some sense that it's a, a, an expression of some universalizable emotion. So can you give us a more concrete sense of what an answer to that question is? 
what does it matter? And somebody would say, well, because this is about the loss of family or something like that. But is, is that enough? No. Uh, okay. What's, what is? What's, what's more, like, what's the, the medium ground between, be, because you want to eventually have something It has to feel like that, there's something real, that there's something, that there's, there's, there's something actually to be decided or an actual dilemma. It's, I've got, we're, there's a similar story that we're working on right now that'll be on in a couple of weeks of where a woman, her mother was a Holocaust survivor. Her mother was hidden by a Catholic family in, in Poland um, when she was a little girl um, for three years. And then her grandfather survived Auschwitz, went back and got her, and, to, and then they went to the United States. Um, but everybody else in her family, her mother and her, her siblings, they all died. So her, the mother's never been interested in the story. The daughter decides that she wants to go back and try and track down this Polish family and meet them. So she goes back to Poland, she has very little information, blah, blah, blah. She actually does end up meeting them. Turns out that the woman that hid her daughter died three years ago, but the son is still there. At this point, like, it's all very interesting for her, but it's a story that has been done so many times that it's just really hard to find something new, except that then she gets there expecting this sort of very kind of expected reunion story, you know, and it turns out that they have been waiting for her to come because the huge apartment building that they live in that used to belong, that still technically does belong to the daughter's family, they say that her grandfather promised it to them and now they owe all this money on taxes, they're about to be kicked out of the whole thing and they want her to begin the process through the Polish courts to transfer the building to her. They want money from her. And the fact is, is that she does owe them. They saved her mother's life. They, they, she wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. They do, she does owe them something, and she acknowledges that she owes them something, but like at what point does it stop? You know, at this point she's devoted like five years and like, I don't know, th thousands of dollars in, in court fees and attorney's fees and, and, and her mother has meanwhile died halfway through this, her own mother has died halfway through this process and the, oh, the son died too. So at this point she spent $10,000 in five years and is trying to get money to the second wife of the son of the woman who saved her mother in the Holocaust. Is it worth it? Like, does she owe them still this, this, all this time and energy? That's what I mean. It's substantial. There's a real question. It's concrete, and it's there, and there's something to talk about. And it's not, like, internal, and I'm not sure how I feel. You know what I'm saying? And there are moments of surprise. And there are moments of surprise. I think that's what I was meaning about something uh, unfolding in the present tense. You know what I mean? As opposed uh, yeah, to none entirely. Of this happened on tape. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Next, next question. Uh, there, do you all prefer to receive a piece uh, at a certain stage of production, whether it's still a concept or whether it's in production or whether it's completely finished? And then uh, maybe a second part question is how important is a news peg to, pro to provide a peg for your story that it should run on this day because it's the anniversary of this and to give you a real excuse to run it? Chris, why don't you start? Um, I did, did two, two things. I, I mean, I've come now 
to think that, 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 again, there's no real right way to pitch. You can send something in any stage. I mean, you know, people send essentially finished pieces, people send chunks of tape, people send very preliminary pitches. All of those things, to me, are totally fine and, 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 and great to get. Um, as for the newspaper, I think newspapers are much overrated, frankly. I mean, particularly the, you know, hoary old anniversary peg. I mean, it's a sort of become a cliche at this point. Now we run our anniversary stories like a month before the anniversary in order to get ahead of all the other people who are running them three weeks ahead of the anniversary. <laughs> so, uh, you know, anniversary things have become a little bit kind of ludicrous at this point. I mean, I think, you know, certainly on our show, it's a news magazine, and, and so people think often the piece has to have a peg. But, you know, it really it really doesn't. A good story, you know, we, we, we want good stories. We want people to pitch us good stories, um, you know, and, and, and we're in. really open to that. You can uh, always make up a peg. Exactly. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> It's what, you know, it's what you yeah. have hosts who are writing leads, that's what they yeah. do. Yeah. There's always some, yeah, there's always some way you can make it relevant or you can connect it to some other piece in the show. I mean, that really is the kind of producer's, the art of writing an intro and the sort of producer's art on our end. We have uh, time for one last question. Thanks. Hi, my name is Eve and I'm from New Orleans and I was just really taken aback by your statement that you're not accepting any more Katrina pitches. And I know that you said that that's because the bar is so high, but it's hurtful, almost like offensive for me to hear you say that. And I guess I just want you to sort of maybe amend that and tell me where that bar is set. Because I've been able to do a couple of stories. I did a story on the community station, uh, WWOZ for WeSat, and I did a story for Justice Talking about the evacuation of Orleans Parish Prison. And my editors for both of those pieces were great. And they pitched those stories to me. And I was able to do those. But now I'm in a position where, as, you've, as you know, I mean, almost it seems like all the angles have been covered. But I think it's really important to get some local voices from there telling the stories as they continue to unfold. Yeah, first of all, I, you know, I didn't mean to uh, give any offense. And uh, I apologize <laughs> if I did. I, I just think it's just... There's so much coverage of Katrina. You know, it's like, you know, it's not Katrina. It could be the war. It could be anything. There's so much coverage that to put something on, I just think the listener thinks, okay, here's the word Katrina. And I think, you know, I've spoken to program directors and stuff like this, slightly, there are two counts, but slightly turn off. The, the, the quality of the radio has to be so good. I, I'm planning stories about Katrina. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I actually planning to send some authors down there to, who've never been there before to check it out because I think that would be interesting. But, um, and, you know, well, we've got... You someone to show them around, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got, you know, we've got some audio diaries with people, as I'm sure lots of other programs are. I think what I meant is just that sometimes some stories are just come out of the blue and they just... Um, you know, they're just sort of quirky, and no one's heard them before, and there's, everybody jumps on this bandwagon. It's like, you know, Chris said about the anniversary bandwagon. You know that everybody's going to be doing a piece about the 60th anniversary of Hiroshima, so do you get your piece in first, or, or do you just not do it because everybody's going to be doing it? It's just that, that, that thing that goes through that if everybody's thinking about one thing at the same time, it's harder to make distinctive radio, I think. 
I think it's very easy for us to become dulled, you know, and listeners to become dull. And I mean, Katrina has produced some of the most amazing stories that I've heard in, you know, in 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 years. And you hear these incredible voices of people who evacuated or people who are having these incredible changes in their life. But there's a certain point where, if every day as a listener, you're hearing those same things, you get dulled to it. And it, it's I really notice it, for example, in the letters we get to the program. The, the first like month of the Katrina, we were overwhelmed with listener response. People incredibly moved by what they were hearing. And then we were doing interviews or, or stories that I thought were really powerful, and they were, boom, no, no real response or reaction because people have kind of reached their saturation point with the story in a, in a certain kind of way. And so the incentive for us or the challenge for us is to come up as... as uh, as my colleague here says, you know, with, with a with a with, with with sort of a new, fresh, imaginative story that hasn't been told before, and it's it's tough to do that. Thank you, thank you all. Uh, don't go away, don't go away. Uh, Johanna has some uh, important news or announcements. Well, first of all, I want to thank Neil and this whole panel, and for your honesty and. Really, I think very, very important information about how to get work on the air. So I'd, I'd like to give them another applause for that. There are a lot of people here um, who you know you may or may not meet over the course of uh, these just couple of days, and so you know we're trying to point them out as time goes on. These are people who you'll want to know because you'll want to pitch them stories. And Martha Little from. Day to Day is here and want to just talk about a minute about the show. Uh, thank you to Third Coast for having us here. Um, yeah, we, uh, I think, feel especially comfortable in this audience because uh, as, if you listen to Barrett Golding, we're putting the best stuff out there and it's a lot of stuff from you guys and uh, we want to keep that reputation going and we really feel strongly and want to keep the doors open to that. We had a piece on howling mice uh, from Jeff Rice uh, once, all the way to you know a porch sound portrait of Churchill's uh, finest hour speech from Adam Burke, who I think is here. Um, so we just want to keep that spirit alive. If you want to pitch, pitch to me, mlittle at npr.org, Martha. Uh, and Catherine Fox is also here in spirit. She's around somewhere. Uh, Kay Fox at uh, NPR.org. She's a, a senior producer who also vets a lot of producer pieces. Excuse me. So, um, pitch away. Okay. Uh, one more person. Sarah Cross is something that you guys should know about. Hi. I didn't realize this would be such a, a timely inquiry. Um, I'm working with a group of volunteers in, in Austin who have been recording oral histories and testimonies of people from New Orleans who ended up in Austin, and this seemed like an opportunity to have a discussion about um, how to continue to highlight the voices and the leadership in that region, um, given some of the issues that have just been raised. So um, I was going to suggest maybe talking over lunch. Um, I'll be sitting at the far back in the center um, if people want to have a, a conversation. Thanks. We'll have, we're going to have one more opportunity for these one-minute um, announcements. So if you have any, please you know, get them to me or to the registration so we can do that before our last session. And these folks want to tell you their email addresses. Right? Uh, yeah. Well, I just, I just thought if anybody wants to pitch, I'm Julie, 
J-U-L-I-E, at thislife.org, T-H-I-S-L-I-F-E.org. And also, too, we send out every couple months, whenever we get around to it, um, a list of upcoming themes of uh, shows that we're working on, and and that kind of is helpful for pitching, I think, too, for you guys, um, just to get, you know, to hear, like, what we're kind of working on, sort of what we're, we're thinking of, you know, it, it sort of helps to remind you. So anyway, if you want to get on the theme list, just send me an email asking me to add your address to the theme list, and the next one should come out probably in two or three weeks, probably. We're, we're a little low on shows right now, so, <laughs> um, yeah, probably in about two or three weeks, so just send me an email. Um, my email address is jskeet, S-K-E-E-T, at AmericanPublicMedia.org or go to WeekendAmerica.org and you can pitch through the website or I think the Air website too is a, you can pitch through the Air website. Uh, yeah, uh, all, all the websites have extensive pitch guidelines too. Yeah, can I, I, you can pitch directly to me at cturpin at npr.org and also we're just about to revise, I believe, on our website uh, some of the information about how to pitch to NPR, uh, which will hopefully make it more user-friendly. Unfortunately, it wasn't finished in order for me to tell you exactly what the changes are, but if you want to keep checking out the website, I hope we'll make that a little bit clearer. And I know that sometimes people tell me that they feel that, you know, ATC is not receptive and we're, we're a hard nut to crack. Um, it really isn't true. It's much easier to get on air than you think it is. So please pitch away. Um, and likewise, if you heard any myths about um, Weekend America, come and talk to me and I'll put you straight. Pieces can be longer than three minutes. Just don't pitch in pieces about New Orleans. <laughs> That's the, uh, Thanks. Bastard.